All right. Well, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We've been working through the, the book of John for well over a year now, and we have a few more months to go in the book of John. But in terms of the life of, life of Jesus, uh, we are right near the end, right near the end. And what we're going to see today is a, is a bit of darkness that ho- hovers over this text. We're going to see grace. Uh, we always do when Jesus is present. But as Jesus moves his disciples through the Passover meal, the air in the room is about to get thick. It's about to get heavy. It's about to be heavy because we're about to learn that Jesus is going to be betrayed and we're going to learn by who. It's a painful text, really fitting for a fourth year anniversary service. Painful. (laughs) Uh, It's filled with grief. And yet, and yet, in the midst of all this, we are never going to get the sense that the situation is out of Jesus's control. That's really important. Uh, In fact, uh, not only is the situation not out of control, uh, what we're going to be reminded of is that our Lord is in total control of all of this. He sees this coming. And in fact, he is working in it and through it. Though there is betrayal here, hardship, and pain, the sovereign plan of God to save his people stands firm. And so today is simple, or simply going to be, uh, another invitation for us to place our faith in him, uh, to trust him. What else should we expect from John's gospel, right? It's about the whole book. Trust him, believe in him. That's today as well. So uh, what we're going to do, I'm just going to walk us through the text, right, verse by verse, as we normally do here. But to guide our time, I'm going to give us a couple key words, single words for us to focus on to hopefully help clarify this passage of Scripture. And so with that, the first word that I want to start us with is belief. Belief. That's where things start today. Belief. It's a familiar word to John's gospel, if you've been here at any part of this sermon series. And we see here, uh, we see this word here in, in John 13, starting in verse 18 as well. Now, uh, just to catch us up, what we saw last week was Jesus in this upper room. He's with his disciples for the Passover meal. And at that meal, we saw this last week, uh, what did Jesus do? Well, uh, he tells them that they must be cleansed if they want to be with him. And he illustrates that through washing their feet and then inviting the disciples to follow in his display of love, in his display of humility and and service. That's where we ended last week with the king stooping down low to show us what true greatness looks like. Well, uh, Jesus doesn't let that idea linger on for for too long because what we see next is Jesus actually moving from telling them to serve out of being cleansed to telling them that not everyone who he is currently washing now at the table is receiving his grace. He tells them that there is actually one, there's one among the group who is not truly being washed not truly willing 
to be cleansed by the Lord. In other words, somebody there in the room doesn't truly believe. See how he says this. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Essentially, Jesus is saying here, I called you. I've been walking with you. And therefore, I know you. I know your heart, he's saying. I know your desires. I know your weaknesses at this point. I know your gifts. And I know at this point, it's been three years. I know, guys, whether or not you truly love me and whether or not you truly believe in me. And then Jesus quotes from Psalm 41 here. He says, my friend, essentially, is going to turn his back on me, he says. Just like what happened to King David. King David is the one who wrote Psalm 41. Just like what happened to King David, uh, his, uh, a close member of his, maybe it was a family or friend, we're not sure exactly who, turned his back on David. Jesus is saying, that was just a foreshadow of what's going to happen to me. Now, last week, if you remember, uh, in the beginning of chapter 13, in verse 2, it says that at this point, Satan himself has been prompting, kind of poking at Judas to betray Jesus. And even with that, what is Jesus' response to Judas? Well, he washes his feet, right? He shows Judas kindness and grace. And what we're going to see here in our text today is actually very similar. It's, in fact, it's the same that Judas will not get what he deserves from Jesus. Judas, at this point, he deserves, he deserves anger, he deserves hate, he deserves animosity, but Jesus' primary posture towards him will again be love. It will again be kindness. And it's interesting, we get insight from Jesus here on why he's even telling the disciples, all of this in the first place. Why even share this with them? He says, I am telling you now, before it happens, that someone's going to betray me, so that when it does happen, what? You will believe that I am who I am. Then he says, very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So we see here that this is actually not about Jesus unveiling his gift of prophecy so that the, the disciples in the room are, are amazed that he's able to predict the future. By the way, he is, and that's an amazing thing, but it's not about that, right? That's not Jesus's goal here. The goal is that they will believe. He's like, I want you to know that even though some, some bad things are about to happen to me, that I'm in total control of all of this, that all of this was actually predicted to happen. And more than that, it actually had to happen. So he's saying, don't worry when it happens. Don't be surprised when I'm betrayed, when I'm arrested, when I'm crucified tomorrow. <laughs> Instead, believe. And of course, this has been the message that the Apostle John wants to convey to every person who reads this book from the very beginning, right? He wants us to believe. 
Jesus here in this text wants us to believe that he says, I am he, he puts it. I am he. Very specifically, purposefully here, Jesus is identifying himself with God. He's saying, I am, that's the name of Yahweh, God, I am, I am the sent one who has come to rescue you. And again, this, this needs to happen. What's about to happen needs to happen. I need to be betrayed. Why? To fulfill God's ultimate plan. And notice, this plan actually goes beyond the disciples believing. Of course he wants them to believe. Yes, that's first and foremost. But do you see that he's also sending them here? That's in the text. That's the gist of verse 20. He says, I want you to believe, but once you receive this word, you receive me, you are being propelled out to do what? To tell others also. And this certainly applies to those of us who follow Jesus as well. That listen, listen now, our belief is never meant to end with us. Never. We receive Jesus. It is a gift of grace. It's amazing kindness that God extends his, his mercy to you and I as sinners. It is grace, deep grace, that he has made a way to be brought back into his family. Right? There's no question about that, but make no mistake about it. As he brings you back in, he then sends you back out. As he brings you to himself, he then commissions you out to our world. Why? So that others may believe as you have believed. So maybe now is the appropriate time or the right time to ask, who is it? Who is it that the Lord has sent you to? He sent you somewhere and to someone or to a people. Who is it? Who is it that the Lord has commissioned you to go and tell? Who, who is it that God has brought into your life that you can now share Jesus with? Listen, listen now. Do you realize, I, I've known this, you know, study the Bible, whatever, but I was just dwelling on this. I had a, a, a good, good night of prayer and devotion last night. You can see, because I keep saying last night. There was a lot last night. But do, you, do you realize, like, really, I was thinking about this. Do you realize that it, it might just be it might just be that the gospel, the gospel on your lips, spoken to whoever that person is, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's this afternoon, maybe it's this week, if you would just have the boldness and courage to do it, maybe it's the gospel on your lips that God might use to save them. What a privilege what a privilege that we have as those who have received, as those who have believed in this Jesus, that we get to tell others the gospel as sent ones. If we would just be willing to share, God might, he might just use you today. So that's where it starts, belief. For you to believe, all of us to believe, but also to go out to share the good news so that others might believe. Jesus wanted the disciples, and he wants us to believe. We see that as a dominant theme here in chapter 13. But we also see now the theme of not just belief, but betrayal. 
betrayal. It's our second key word today. I have two B's for you and two G's. Betrayal. We see this in verses 21 through 30. You might call this or say that this is the calling out of Judas. And you'll notice that the narrative sort of picks up pace here. Even if you're just reading along, the narrative really kind of just kind of picks up pace. It says, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. There it is. We're going to see this theme, by the way, of Jesus being troubled in his spirit over the next couple of chapters. And we're going to understand more why (laughs) as he draws closer and closer uh, to the cross. But let's understand this as well, that up to this point, Jesus has only hinted at his betrayal. He's never come out directly and said it. He said things like, one of you isn't clean in the room. He said, uh, I know who I've chosen. He said, um, not, all, not all of you are with me. Right? He, he's hinted around this, but now he just comes right out and says it. One of you is going to betray me. And yet, despite that, despite those words, that directness, we still see the disciples a bit caught off guard and confused. They're confused at this. It says, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. In other words, they're very surprised at this. They're taken aback at this. They have no idea who Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus clarifies even further. Look what happens. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? You can just picture the scene here now, can't you? He's 12 plus Jesus reclined around this U-shaped table as it was traditionally done. Low table, really low. You'd recline at it, your feet behind you, right? That's how he's washing the feet. The recliner on this table. John, who wrote this, is sitting right next to Jesus. Peter is not. He's maybe a couple seats away. We're not sure exactly where he's seated, but he's a couple seats away. But Peter needs to know what is happening. And we don't know how, but somehow he privately gets John's attention. And he's like, hey, little bro, John's the youngest. Hey, little bro, ask Jesus which one of us is going to betray him. Right? They're having this little side conversation now in the room. And so we see John, you know, being a good little brother, I guess, he listens. He listens to Peter. John, by the way, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the title he uses for himself. Right? And as you read that, he says, like, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers himself. I think it's three times in the book. We'll see it two more times. And by the way, it's important for us to know, this is just a side note, that this is not at all John being arrogant, right? Like, I'm the one that he loves, and I don't know about you, 
reading this, and I'm not sure, but I know he loves me. That's not, that's not what it's saying. This is just him very plainly understanding his identity. He's boasting in Christ, actually. He's boasting in Jesus here. Jesus loves me, right? And so, what does he do? Sitting next to Jesus, he turns to him. They're both reclining. He leans back on Jesus closely, maybe right into his ear, and he asks Jesus, with no one else in the room listening, Jesus, who is it? Who's going to do that to you? Private conversation. And Jesus answers, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. You know, it's interesting. Uh, when I was first studying this text, first looking into this text, I, to be honest, I was a little bit confused here. And I wondered, why in the world didn't Jesus just say to John, it's Judas? <laughs> Who did it, Jesus? Who's going to do it? Judas. Why didn't he say that? Wouldn't that have been easier and more direct? Yes. <laughs> but, but... Looking into this more deeply, I realized that, that what Jesus was actually doing here was once again showing kindness to Judas in all of this. What, Je what Jesus was actually doing here with this bread was actually culturally an act of honor towards him. See, Jesus, Jesus is at this meal, and his role at the meal, he's actually playing the host. That's his position at this dinner. And it's still this way today at Passover meals. Someone plays the role of host. That's Jesus here. That's his position and status. He is the host. Have you ever, um, maybe, I don't know if this is like a Western thing or not, but have you, ever, have you ever gone over to someone's house who likes to cook and they're actually good at it? <laughs> okay, careful. Don't look around. Okay, right? I, I'm not sure like if, if girls do this as much, but I know, I know guys definitely do this, right? The guy's out back, he's like grilling up some kind of meat. It doesn't matter what it is, it's always meat. It's grilling meat, right? They have some secret like seasoning for it, like a rub or whatever, they put on it. And, and then the guests arrive and what typically happens, right? The guests arrive and then, the guy who's been grilling the meat, maybe he'll take the guest, the other guy, out into the back, out to the porch, around the grill, because guys talk around grills. It's kind of like a thing, right? Over the grill, and then what happens? They cut off a little bit of piece, put it on a fork, and what do they say? Man, you got to try this, right? You got to try this, right? Well, no one's looking, right? I'm going to give you the, right? You know what I'm talking about. You're going to love this, man. I'll just try this, right? Here you go. This is for you. Right? You're the guest. This is for, this is for you. Right? Actually, that's the kind of role that Jesus is taking here at this dinner. He's the host. So this is not at all, actually, about him being secretive. No, it's, it's much more than that. This act of giving the bread, giving the, the first bite, the, the first sample to Judas, 
Every single person in the room would have understood that this was a great act of kindness, a great act of favor, and it was showing Judas honor. Maybe there was even a little bit of jealousy. Man, I can't believe Judas gets the first piece. From Jesus himself, Judas takes the first piece. He gets that privilege. Right? Again, that's why I said it's similar to the, to the foot washing that we looked at last week, isn't it? Right? Jesus chose to wash Judas's feet even though he knew what Judas was about to do. It's the same thing right here. Jesus does not withhold his love and kindness from Judas. It's just so amazing, so humbling, that until the very end, until the very end, we see that Jesus never turns his back against Judas, but instead keeps a posture of not just humility, but of grace and love towards a person that he has considered a friend for the last three years. And there is a, a deeply profound message in this for, for us here today in the room from this. Hear me now, that if you are here in this room today and you are living in sin, maybe you're running from God or maybe you've just been pretending to follow Jesus. Today you can be reminded that, that, that just like Jesus never cast Judas aside, he will do the very same thing to you and for you. Jesus invited Judas to himself. He showed him gracious love to the very end and he is extending that invitation, that grace to you today. You can still turn from your sin. It's not too late. You can still truly know Jesus. It's not too late. If Jesus can love Judas to the very end, his love is not taken away from you. So repent, turn, trust in Jesus, turn to him. Well, unfortunately, uh, sadly in our text, unfortunately, Judas does not turn to Jesus. He doesn't repent. He doesn't receive Jesus' love. And so Jesus gives Judas the bread, and this is what happens. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival. That's the Passover meal. Or to give something to the poor. Verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. He left the room, left Jesus and then we're told this detail, and it was night. These are some very, very, very serious verses here in John's gospel. As we see now, Satan himself fully possesses Judas here. Right? That's the image. Satan had earlier put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. But now upon this further rejection of the kindness of God in Christ, and Jesus has given him chance after chance after chance, revealing who he is by what he said and what he has done, but he's been rejected. Now Judas is fully possessed by Satan, we're told. And I think, I think it's really important 
to take note here that this is not, not just some minor detail in God's story of redemption. It's not a minor detail in God's story of redemption. No, Satan himself, Satan himself, the one who has been against God since the very, very, very beginning of your scriptures, since the garden, has now personally entered the stage, if this is a play. He has personally come onto the scene to once again attempt to thwart God's plan, as he's always been doing. But again, we should not mistake the fact that Jesus is not caught off guard here. He's not surprised by what Jesus, uh, Judas has done and who has entered into Judas. Even in the betrayal, even in the hardness of heart, Jesus is not thrown off. And so Judas is indwelt by Satan. He leaves, gets up, we're told. He leaves the upper room, leaves the meal. The disciples don't understand what's just happened or why Judas left, except for John, because Jesus has told John. And then we see in verse 30, again, this detail that it was night. It was night. The theme, by the way, in John's gospel all throughout, I've told you this many times, light and darkness. We're told it's night. And by the way, it's not about the time of day at all. It probably was night. We don't know. It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with the time of day. (laughs) The intention John has here is actually, as we're reading through John's gospel, he wants us right here, right now to stop. Stop reading. To let this sink in to feel the heaviness of this moment. Darkness has fallen. The betrayal is now in process. The clock is ticking. Judas's soul has been given over to the enemy. It's a sobering moment, and yet, and yet, in the midst of the darkness, we are not supposed to despair. The only reason that we should despair in this situation is if the plan of God has been derailed. If Jesus is now like thrown off the course, thrown off of his mission, if there's uncertainty, but Jesus never even gives us one drop of uncertainty here. Instead, he actually turns this whole situation into glory. (laughs) It's amazing. Into glory, which is our third key word for this section of scripture, glory. We have belief, we have betrayal, and now we enter the section of glory. And this is very unexpected, honestly. Very unexpected, because after what has just happened, we might expect some words of comfort from Jesus. Right? That would be human in some ways. We might expect Jesus to say here what he's actually going to say in the next chapter, in chapter 14, where he'll say, do not let your hearts be troubled. But what Jesus does instead is reflect on glory. This is a heavy moment. Darkness again has descended. But what Jesus does is actually lift our eyes out of the darkness and has us look up to see the glory that is happening around him. What Jesus wants his disciples and us to see in verses 31 to 32 is that Judas' betrayal is not actually the beginning of the downfall of God's sovereign plan, not at all. It's actually the beginning of its conclusion. It's good. Do you understand what I'm saying there? This, this, This moment here, this is not, 
what Judas just got up to go do, sell out Jesus. This is not when Jesus is brought down. It's actually when he is exalted, when he is lifted up. Look at this with me. This is verses 31 to 32. When he was gone, that's Judas, he left the room, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glory him at once. A lot of glory there. A little wordy. Let's understand what Jesus just said to the disciples now. I'm going to try to make it really easy for you. Okay? He says, The sovereign plan of God, which includes my betrayal, leads us to this... Couldn't think of a better way to say this leads us to this sort of triple glory, okay, if you will. Triple glory, we'll think of it this way. Three levels of glory, or you could say it that way. Triple glory. What I mean by that is that there's, again, there's three layers of glory happening here in this text and going on here as a result of this scene. First, we see that Jesus himself is glorified. He says that. Now the Son of Man is glorified. And this isn't just about his betrayal, by the way, the moment of his betrayal. He's talking about everything that the betrayal is going to lead us to, which we'll see over the next couple months. His arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, all of it, right? In the scriptures, by the way, it's good for you to know this, there are those things, those acts they are all together one kind of theological act, actually. Right? One movement in the plan of God. They go together. Right? You, you're not supposed to separate them in God's mind. Right? And it's this act, this act of redemption, his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all of it together, this, Jesus says, is the glory of the Son of Man. We've talked about this, but Jesus mentions it again here, and so I will, too. <laughs> this act, being betrayed, being arrested, again, crucified, it's the glory of Christ. It's the glory of the Son of Man, because it was always his mission, his purpose for coming to the earth, to go to the cross for the sins of the world. Again, this was far from the derailing of God's plan. It was the fulfillment of it. Right? This is where Jesus' life, it's where the entirety of his ministry was always headed. So it's right to say what's happening here in the upper room is actually not a failure. It's a success. Listen, the cross is not a failure. It's a success. Right? This is the Son's Glory, which is why we, the church, followers of Jesus Christ, it's why we should exalt the cross. Amen? Why we exalt the cross. By the way, this is also one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, but one of the key reasons, I think, why the world around us cannot understand us. Because this doesn't seem to make sense on the surface, does it? It seems like nonsense. I mean, Think about the cross. The cross was an execution weapon meant to kill criminals. There's nothing glorious about it. It's not pretty. Right? It's ugly, brutal. But for the Son of Man, who was, who was sent to die for the sins of the world, the cross is glorious. So the first glory is the sons. The sons. The second is God the Father, 
he gets in on this too. God the Father is also glorified in the Son, more specifically in the Son's obedience. We talked about this as well. That the Father has sent his Son to accomplish this redemptive work, to die for the sins of the world, and to reconcile simple, sinful people to himself, to redeem a people for himself. And we know that this is accomplished through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, by means of that sacrifice, that as the Son goes to the cross, we see here that the Father who sent him is honored in that. He's honored by it. In other words, the obedience of Jesus pleases him. And in that, the Father is glorified. So we have the Son's glory, the Son of Man. We have the Father's glory in the Son. And then thirdly, God the Father promises here to glorify the Son himself. Jesus, we're told, will receive glory through his work. That was first. But now we see sort of a, a second layer to that, that God the Father will actually himself honor Jesus. And as a result of that work, he will honor Jesus' faithfulness, which will be displayed by Jesus, ultimately being seated at the right hand of the Father at his ascension. The Son of Man is glorified, God the Father is glorified in the obedience. And then the Father says, I will also glorify the Son. And that is pictured in him ultimately seating Jesus at his right hand. So again, there's a lot of glory in all of this being given to our great God. <laughs> you see that? And this is Jesus' message to his disciples seated with him in the, in the upper room that Passover evening. Judas has left the room to go betray Jesus. But do not doubt the Lord. Do not look at the darkness and be led to despair. Rather, let this situation lead your eyes and your heart to looking at the glory that is being accomplished through God's incredible sovereign plan. Belief, betrayal, glory, and in all this, we see grace. We see grace. This is a plan of God's great grace. I love Jesus' tone in verses 33. Awesome. He says this, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I am now telling you, where I am going, you cannot come. You can just hear the kindness of Jesus towards his disciples now. I don't want us to miss this. This is actually not casual here in him addressing the disciples. This isn't like, uh, hey, hey guys, I'm only going to be with you a little bit longer. Just wanted you to know. No, it's, it's more like, um, like dearest, sweetest children, he's saying. My beloved, those that I, I've been with, those that I've cared for. He's, a, he's, he's addressing them in a very endearing way as Jesus feels the weight of this situation that's before him. He knows, by the way, he knows that they can't see this glory that he's telling them about. They cannot see it yet. They will, but they can't see it yet. And so he tries to help them understand. Uh, most of you here in this place know that I have a, a six-year-old son. 
His name is Eli. And one of the things that I've learned about him, it took me some time, <laughs> but one of the things that I've learned about him is that it's really good for him to know what's coming before it actually comes. It's really good for him. It's just helpful. It's helpful for him to know what's happening. Surprises are not typically good for him. They don't work out too well, okay? Other than like his birthday or something. But otherwise, he doesn't like surprises. And that, that's even in the little things. Like, um, like yesterday morning, so I, I didn't used to do this in the, before, but yesterday morning, because now I know, now I'm wiser, you know. And so yesterday, yesterday morning, um, it was really early in the morning, and one of the, we, you know, how, how'd you sleep, whatever. And then one of the first things I told him was, hey, hey, buddy, um, later this afternoon, like after lunch, um, I need to go and work on this sermon. I need to go out. So it's like, you know, five hours away, six hours. But, I, but in about six hours, he doesn't know what that means. Like, exactly. Right? That's eternity. Um, right? He's upset when I'm like, I'll play with you in 15 minutes. And it's like, no, you know, right? You know what I'm talking about. But like in about six hours, I'm going to go. I need to go work, work on this sermon. Right? I, I know now that it's not wise for me to say nothing to him. See, I used to think, oh, it's better, like, I don't want to upset him. I don't want to ruin his morning. Like, I'm afraid he won't eat his lunch because he'll be upset. Like, that, that's a nightmare, right? Because I, I used to just tell him what I was doing. I'd go over, and I'd, like, just grab my coat. And he can hear the shh, that sound. And then he'd turn. What are you doing? Right, you know. What, what, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to the cafe. You can see it out the window. I'm going out, literally this cafe near my house. I'm going to that cafe out the window for the next two hours to work on the sermon. I'll be back. What? No, no. You know, what am I going to do? You know, that's how it used to be. I don't do that anymore. Right? Right? It's not wise for me to say nothing to him. Um, see, now I know that it's actually, it's good. It's good. It's good for me to prepare his heart and to prepare his mind. Because it typically upsets him. Again, it upsets him when I leave the house. He doesn't want me to leave. But at least if I let him know in advance, he's not offended when I leave in the moment when I do leave. He's not like, how could you do this to me? He doesn't do that anymore. You never said you were going to go, right? Yeah, I did. Right? He still might be sad, but at least he's prepared. And so this started back even in December. I'm going on a a trip to, to Indonesia, right, in February, in a couple of weeks. I've been telling him since March, hey, in four months, I'm going for six days. <laughs> what? When is that? Where's your suitcase? No, no, it's like four months away. And every now and then, I remind him so that he's prepared. Jesus is treating his disciples like that here. He knows they don't understand all that's going on. They can't understand. And so, like a father would do with his children, he says, guys, let me tell you more about what's going to happen here. I'm about to leave, and where I'm going, you can't come. You can't go. And it's here where we see the grace of God's sovereign plan. Because understand what Jesus is not saying. This is so important. Man, this is so key to this text. So important. Jesus is not saying here, I don't want you. He's not saying, stay away from me, I'm leaving. 
He's saying, I'm about to go accomplish something for you that you are not qualified to accomplish for yourself. It's not, it's not that I don't want you to come. It's actually more that you, you can't come. Right? And, and, and that doesn't mean you, you can't die. But what it does mean is that your death cannot accomplish what my death needs to accomplish and is about to accomplish for you. I need to go. You can't come. And so I need you to trust me. That's what Jesus is saying. This is good for you. Well, Peter doesn't quite get it. I'm sure the others don't either. But Peter always speaks up. I guess he's their leader, vocally at least. And so in verse 36, he says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Hmm. If you know Peter, you wouldn't expect anything less from him, right? He is always all in, isn't he? Always. And honestly, I love that about him. I really appreciate that about him. Lord, I'll go anywhere. I'll even lay down my very own life for you. And friends, that is what you call irony in the Bible, okay? That is ironic. Peter has no idea what he has just said. He says that he is willing to lay down his life for Jesus when the whole point of all of this narrative is that Jesus is about to go lay down his life for Peter and the whole world, by the way. And this is the grace, the glorious grace of the gospel that Jesus and Jesus alone can lay down his life for the sins of the world. Now, there is also a sense here as well in which Jesus is saying, Peter, you can't have my place. You can't take my place. You can't take my throne. Because look at what his response is to him. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus says, Peter, you cannot walk this road with me. You can't walk it for me. And beyond that, you're not even going to be able to avoid denying me. Forget dying for me. You're about to turn your back on me. Now, uh, we'll get to that later. Peter's denial. We'll study that. But notice in the text above, even just above this once again, that Peter, that actually Jesus, excuse me, Jesus does tell Peter, that later he will follow him. You cannot follow me now, but you'll follow me later. And what does Jesus mean by that? Well, that Peter will die just as Jesus died. That's what he means. He's literally telling him here, foreshadowing it, that Peter will go to the cross, literally, just like Jesus. He will be crucified for his faith. And he was, by the way. He imitated his Savior in his death, except for, and you've heard me say this before, one thing, he was crucified upside down. It was Peter's last and final request. I cannot die the same way as my, my Jesus, my Lord. He begged them, we're told in the, in the church history. He begged the people, grant me one last thing, please. Crucify me, 
but do it upside, upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. How about devotion? Huh? <laughs> Talk about it. The point still remains, though, that only Jesus' death secures eternity. That's the point. Only Jesus' death was sufficient to cover sin. Peter will die on the cross, but his death will not be sufficient for the covering of sin. Now, just because we as God's people cannot go with him to the cross, lay down our lives for the sake of others, doesn't mean that we don't have a role in all this. And so what is that? What's our part in all this? What's our role? If it's not to die for the sins of others, what's our role? Well, we see here from Jesus that our job is to receive his grace and then turn around and extend his gospel love to others. We've talked a little bit about this, but we see it more clearly now. Right? You thought I skipped these verses before, the ones that were read uh, before by Ali, but I was just saving them till now. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is, by the way, uh, really, the, it's the application of this entire text. This is our to-do, if you will. On all that's just been said, we receive Jesus' truth. We trust him. We receive his gift of grace. And then we live lives transformed by it, by that grace. And man, this is so simple, but so hard. <laughs> Of all of the things Jesus could have said here to do, how do you live out the gospel? How do you live out this transformed life by his grace? Love one another. He doesn't say go get degrees. He doesn't say read all the theology books. Those are all good things, by the way. But he doesn't say that. He just boils it all down to this. One thing, love one another as I have loved you. You know what's, what's so amazing? What's so amazing about Jesus' work on the cross? One of the things, at least. There's a, there's a lot of things, but one of the things is that it accomplishes the miracle of creating a new people, a new community. The cross does that. A community of people who have one primary distinctive marker, love. So much so, so marked by this love are we to be that the world around us is supposed to be able to look at us, look inside places like this, like right here, and say to themselves, wow, that looks a lot like Jesus. They must be his people. And so church family, I, I just want to ask, I think this is an appropriate question to ask, even on an, an anniversary service, four years, I want to ask, how are we doing? How are we doing with this? How are you doing in loving one another like Jesus has loved you? And honestly, I'm not primarily asking here to, to, like, to kick you, <laughs> to make you feel bad about yourself. No, I'm more so just asking to say, even now, you can do this. Just like look around the room. Think of your missional family. Think of those people. 
and realize that the primary thing, the primary thing that Jesus has called you to do with these people here gathered together is love them. That's it. Love them. And how far should you love them? As far as Jesus did? Wait, wait, wait. Should, should I wait? Kind of, should I be the first one to make the move? Shouldn't I wait till they like, at least like me first? Right? Or maybe until they show me some love first? And the question back is, is that what Jesus did to you? No. This love is sacrificial. It's an initiating type of love. It pursues. And it's just beautifully, it just beautifully flows from us because we've been transformed by the same love. FEC family, the gospel has made its way into our hearts. It has reshaped us, transformed us to now look at our brothers and sisters in the gospel and say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to love them. This is what marks the people of God. This is what marks those who have received his grace. We are those who have been transformed by his love and who are now sent out to love. Amen? Let's pray together.